This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Nina Mukherjee Firstenau writes lusciously about food. Her books interweave her mouth-watering culinary journeys with a knowledge of food history that spans millennia and enchanting moments of memoir that give her readers a glimpse of private kitchens and hidden gardens that we would otherwise never see. Born in Thailand to Indian parents and raised in Pittsburgh, Kansas during the 1960s and 70s, Nina's childhood was part softball, country fairs and pickup trucks, and part ripe mangoes, perfume gardens, and lizards lazing on white walls in West Bengal. As she writes in her new book, Green Chili and Other Imposters, she was a product of two cultures and extraneous at times in both. But Nina has been far from extraneous as an adult. Since those early days of code-breaking two cultures, she has been a trade magazine writer, run her own publishing business, run an art gallery, won multiple writing awards, and was the director of food systems communication for the University of Missouri's Science and Agricultural Journalism program for eight years. In 2019, she spent nine months in Kolkata, India as a Fulbright scholar, the result of which is her fourth book out this week called Green Chili and Other Imposters. And it is such a delight to have her to myself for a while. Hello, Nina. Hello, Diana. Thank you for having me. I want to start with that quote about growing up betwixt two cultures. Being a child of two cultures is at best probably unsettling and at worst traumatic, depending on the kids you go to school with. But as an adult, having access to two cultures is a wonderful gift. And I'm curious at what point the angst became delight and if there was a catalyst for that transformation. Oh, that's a good question. And you would have some experience with this as well, I imagine. (laughs) So growing up in southern Kansas in that era meant I'd spent a fair amount of time trying to fit in and assimilate. And and that's not a bad thing necessarily, except that I realized over the course of years, it took me a while to see it, that I was losing another part of myself by doing that um, to the exclusion of celebrating my family's homeland. And so when I began to recognize that and spend time, I always yearned, you know, to go back to India and stay for a time. And I was drawn to the histories there and the foods of the Bengal, uh, West Bengal. And, you know, it's just, um, I don't don't know if I can pinpoint a time when I I started to value that as much as my American upbringing, but it certainly has become the case now. And so I can't say there was a crystallizing moment, but the closest I have to that is when I went into the Peace Corps with my husband right after my undergraduate degree. We were in North Africa, in Tunisia, and the ladies there I worked with were not educated women, and a lot of my memories from that time were from the kitchen when they would be cooking and I'd be talking with them, or they would ask me to make Indian food which was probably the first time I ever felt total acceptance of the other side of my life, the Indian side. And I just felt so celebrated, and they love those foods. And to this day, the memories from those two years in North Africa 
the best memories come from the kitchen, the times in the kitchen with those ladies. And so maybe that was the crystallizing moment. I always describe going back to England as like putting on a pair of comfortable, well-worn slippers, even though the cultures of the United States and the United Kingdom are pretty similar. Mm. So let me ask you this. Where do you keep your slippers in Kolkata <laughs> or Missouri? <laughs> um, that's interesting because... Uh, when I went to India, my husband described me as a fish returning to its waters. I was just so happy to be there. It was a wonderful experience being on the Fulbright Nehru grant and having the gift of time on the ground there. But I have to say, when I got back to the U.S., arriving in the Midwest, I looked around and I, you know, the way people were behaving in lines, the way they talked to each other, the amount and um, length of eye contact, <laughs> all of those small cultural things. And I remember feeling, ah, oh, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> so I am probably... Uh, the amount of time I've been in the U.S. makes it my homeland. But I just have this access to a whole other way of being that I just treasure. So I guess I'm truly split. <laughs> mm, a slipper in each continent. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a little uh, precarious at times. <laughs> to what extent was food preparation part of your childhood? Clearly you love food and you value it and it's cultural diversity, but how much did you like making it when you were a child? Well, I, you know, the era I grew up in wasn't a great culinary era for the U.S. So we had things like, well, my mother used to make Indian foods when I was in grade school. But as, as I grew up and she decided she would really like to teach, she became really busy. So I was a young teenager, 13 or so, when she started working at the high school as an English teacher. So she would come home tired and I would try and help by cooking. So my culinary delights were things like hamburger helper, <laughs> <laughs> frozen green beans. So it wasn't very um, anything to aspire to. But when my mother would cook, often she would make breads, uh, luchis or chapatis and I loved, you know, helping her with that. She would do the rolling and I would do the part on the stove, flipping the bread so they puffed up and watching the air whoosh out of them when you put them on a plate after they had gotten just the right amount of blister. And that kind of detail was, was really fun for me. And I think it was also time to spend with my mom. So I did some cooking, but mostly if it was good cooking, it was when I was in her company. And when you went to visit your cousins and grandparents in India, were you encouraged to be part of the food preparation or were children supposed to stay away and be seen and not heard? Yeah, no, not so much in India. I just was the recipient of a lot of good food there. Um, <laughs> I think for a lot of people in India, um, my mother, for instance, she never cooked until she got married and left her mom's home that happens a lot there. She, and so she would write frantic letters back to India. Uh, they were living in Thailand at the time. And my grandmother would send her notes back on how to make basic dishes. And actually, that is the that scenario is what caused me to write the first book about this topic, Biting Through the Skin, an Indian Kitchen in America's Heartland, was based on those recipe cards that my grandmother would write letters back to my mom with these recipes. And then I found when I left for the Peace Corps, 
I ended up taking four or five recipes written on cards from my mom, and they turned out to be the same ones because they're the comfort foods we grow up with. And apparently, even though I grew up in Kansas, my comfort foods were the same as my mother's. So who grew up in Bengal? You write in your new book, before I booked a seat to Kolkata or worried over much about the state of my language skills there, the foods at my family's table were simply flavours I enjoyed, but I could feel this shifting. What was that shifting? The shifting was that I wanted to know more about those flavours. I, I wanted to understand the palate of that nation. We all sort of have an understanding of the palate of America just by knowing a little bit about the history here and the people who settled different areas and what might that have done to what appears on the plate. And I just didn't know enough about India. I wanted to know more about what made things delicious to people there. And if something was delicious, where did that come from? And had it always been there? I, I love food history. And I think it connects very strongly with food and identity. And I guess those two topics are really fascinating to me. Did you have a sense that Indian food was full of imposters before you began to research for your book? You know, I, I had an inkling, but I was really intrigued by the idea of seeing the nexus of world activity being Asia rather than the U.S., because we're always thinking of North America in those terms today. But earlier in history, that really was Asia, how things moved around the world and what came into borders and what left was not something I knew enough about. At least I felt like I could learn a lot more. And so I was surprised in some ways by the foods that I always thought of as being uh, from this hemisphere, actually coming from Asia, or occasionally the things that went into Asia that people there were convinced were native and may have not been, or, or in many cases, just simply were, was not. They came from outside. You title the book Green Chili and Other Imposters, as opposed to peas and other imposters, or potatoes and other imposters. What was it about green chilies that made that the most special imposter? Well, I think it's because there's a stereotype that Indian food is really hot, and it certainly can be, and sometimes it's very tasty that way. But my family's foods have never been particularly hot, so I've known all along that that isn't the case necessarily all over India. And I wondered what caused the heat. There's lots of thoughts about uh, people using chilies to cover the taste of bad meat and so forth, and I knew that that was not the case. So, you know, what brought what brought that to India? Uh, what made it so hot? And also this idea that, um, so one, India is identified with hot foods, even though historically foods were not that hot there. The most piquant spice was long pepper, which is a bit like black pepper, but so not, not like a chili hot. Um, and so the mark of the cuisine is really layered spices, not necessarily heat like the stereotype is. So I guess I was intrigued by that. And I thought that might resonate with a lot of people outside of the country. In India itself, I think it's becoming known that green chilies weren't originally from there, except for the boot jalokia, which is the ghost chili up from Assam in the mountainous regions, which 
seems to be indigenous, or at least it's very, very old if it's not indigenous. So in India itself, it's thought to be native many times, or was thought to be native. And so this whole idea of what is foreign to a place and when does it cease to become thought of as an outsider and become closely held. I think we all do that in every country. You know, we take things, we make them through ingenuity, we make them delicious, and then they, we hold them close to the vest. Those are those are our comfort foods. When does that happen, if, especially with an ingredient that comes from outside? And, of course, I'm making a little tongue-in-cheek because I saw myself as a bit of the same imposter, looking like I belonged, but perhaps <laughs> having my homeland much further away than just the next village or city. It, it, it's a play on both of those ideas. In the author's note at the beginning of your book, you pose that question, when does an adopted food become a keenly held tradition? And, and I wonder if after writing the book, you have a sense of the answer to that question. Oh, wow. Well, I don't think I do. I think that that's <laughs> part of the mystery, right? And uh, you kind of trace back things to when they entered and you see what evolved after the connection of a culture and an ingredient. And all these wonderful home cooks and perhaps chefs started playing with these ingredients. And in India, there's a huge component to the diet that is food as medicine. And so the doctors start playing with it to see what effect it has on the body internally, as well as how you feel after you eat something made with that. And so slowly, it just infiltrates everything, every part of the culture. And at some point, you cease to realize that it has come from outside. But what point that is, um, it'd be hard to pinpoint. I think food history in general, you know, you take even an everyday food that doesn't seem very complex, if you start to try and trace its food history, it's an, impacted by so many different factors, not only uh, trade, but agriculture and environment and so many more things. It gets very complicated finding its exact food trail. Well, let's have you read a little bit from your book. There is a lovely passage right at the very beginning of the book about your grandmother Rani's garden. Would you read that for us? Oh, I'd be happy to. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Here we go. This is uh, satisfying our hungers. Ronnie found me squinting upward into mango trees, my eyes trained on the succulent orbs just out of reach. I never wavered, even when the leaves shifted and the sun glinted through, blinding me temporarily. The smooth, fiber-free flesh of Langra, one of 1,500 mango varieties happily fruiting in India, had an unmatched taste. When ripe, they were so luxurious, you could spoon the fruit out of their skins like custard. It was 1966, and I was visiting my grandparents in India from my home in the United States, where there were no mangoes like this. My grandmother, Ronnie's trees, were dwarfs. They sat beside tasty papaya and custard apple. Her garden, complete with a small fish pond, was a wonderland. There are almost 350,000 acres of commercial mango trees grown where Ronnie lived in the state of Bihar, now Jharkhand, each bearing an average of two to 300 mangoes per season in their mature years. Even so, each year, Ronnie acted swiftly at just the right moment before visiting monkeys could feast, and the fruits, swaying in enticement, were plucked from their rhythmic dance with the wind to be left unmoored in a bucket. Jars of golden chutney soon glistened in her kitchen. Mangoes and slow heat, 
both sweet and tart on the tongue, the last jar of her fruit that seemed to so effortlessly distill the Indian sun, opened and consumed, and what was passed down through generations stopped short. It was a kindness not to know when or by whom the final spoonful of my grandmother's green mango chutney was swallowed. No one knew her secret. Her recipe was shuffled into a drawer, if ever written down, and though Ronnie had preserved a flavor, a kitchen, and a life, I felt sealed out, grasping for connection. My grandmother reached the trees I stood under by skirting the small fish pond in the garden, as well as the family Tulsi Mancha, the terracotta planter for basil revered in Bengali households. She made sure to light the dia lamp each day to protect the household, using homemade cotton wicks my uncles rolled against their legs. The aromatic Tulsi, a powerhouse of ancient India's Ayurvedic medical system, is thought to be a gateway between heaven and earth. And the fragrance of basil as well as a thought of Langra, might well have done the trick and opened divine doors. The garden was fruitful and the mangoes sublimely delicious. Those mango trees may have been the instigator for my life's work in food story. A perfumed garden can be far-reaching. In 2018, I gladly and humbly accept a nine-month Fulbright Nehru research grant to study the heritage foods of Bengal. I arrive in Kolkata, and much as I did as a child, staring up at the mangoes just out of my reach, I gazed around me in wonder at the rich food tales and trails reaching back to antiquity in northeast India. This book is a result of those tales as they unfolded to me over three seasons in my family's homeland. I love that introduction. It has a hint of Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things about it. <laughs> oh, nice. That's really nice. <laughs> I'll take that compliment. <laughs> Your search for imposters really begins in the 16th century with the arrival of the Portuguese who came with tomatoes, okra, papayas, cashew nuts, and the green chilies of the book's title. Tell us a little bit about what they call the Colombian Exchange. Well, and I think everybody, many people will be familiar uh, with it as maybe one of the first globalization, or maybe the first globalization of foods. I say maybe because uh, there was an exchange, I think, earlier than that. But that was the first time foods just sort of exploded all around the world, not just going from the new world to the old, but from the old world to the new world. And so that exchange of foods was a very rich time for culinary blueprinting. And I think that many cultures were exposed to lots of flavors that they had never had access to before. And it, it created just a very rich history that we're all benefiting from today. And, you know, it, it, it was the first globalization, I suppose, mass globalization. Right. I wish we could talk about India without talking about the British, but we are linked through 300 years of history, history that, of course, rarely favoured the Indians. Your father was 19 when India gained independence, and you write that his young life was spent knowing that manliness for the Western man meant wheat breads and meat. And this idea of manliness crops up more than once in your book. Tell us about this legacy of British colonialism in food choices. Right. Well, so that's a big topic. And so I'm, hoping, <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that maybe I, I tease some interest in, in readers to see it further along. But, but to just barely touch the surface of that, food tropes are very powerful. They kind of, to use a pun, um, 
get you in the gut level of, of a culture. And so a lot of times uh, in the time of the colonial period, not necessarily early British East India Company years, but after that, when it became the what's called the Raj, the colonial powers that be, and I'm sure not all of them, but many, many of them, would eat a lot of meat, big joints of animal flesh on the table, and they would overeat to the point that they became very large people. And um, it showed that they had um, prestige and power, and they used it to kind of set themselves apart from the people they were had authority over. And so I think that also the impact of protein over a long life did make people a different stature. They were tall. They had a lot of muscle. And so I think that Indian men who were raised, especially as my father was, not eating meat, saw that as a real difference between uh, the men of the West and the men he was growing up around. And so it was a powerful thing to him. And he felt that that was I feel that that's what his thinking was, was that you needed to eat meat to be strong. And though I I don't always agree with that because I think there's a lot of ways to gain the protein, that wasn't a, I guess, a decision made out of reason. It was sort of under the conscious level. I just know... I just know from growing up, we had meat and potatoes and and wheat breads a lot, and he would never have grown up eating that kind of food. It's odd just to think that the idea of rice was effeminate. I know. Isn't that surprising? It was, and, and it was used as a way to belittle people. They would call Bengalis, oh, those silly rice eaters, except they would probably use worse words than that. They thought rice eating was something that made you weak and made you lazy. And um, and as far as a very effective way to kick at the heart of a culture, that was very painful because rice in India uh, is linked to so many occasions, the birth of a baby, when the baby becomes a certain age, you have a ceremony that includes rice. Every important occasion in, in, in Bengal, especially and perhaps other, and for sure in other areas of India, the rice is just tied to important things to the culture. And so if you start to belittle that rice, it becomes um, a way to hit the heart of a culture. And if you think about, you know, rice in Asia, corn to the Native Americans, there's different grains that is the heart of every culture on earth. And to the West, it was wheat. So they wanted to supplant rice and the Eastern culture with the Western culture and wheat. And that, I don't know that it was all consciously thought out, but that's certainly how the slurs went. If you were rice eating, you were really not good. One of the imposters you talk about in the book that maybe surprised me was the P. The P, you say, tells a walloping story of nation, agriculture, colonization and race. And you tie the P to a Bengali word, gondogol, (laughs) meaning something that causes trouble that you can't quite put your finger on. Tell us why the P was such a troublemaker. Right. It really was. And I guess I need to be specific at the garden pea, the green pea that we're all, uh, because there are other peas that are mentioned in that chapter. But the garden pea was something developed. It came out of Ethiopia, but it became all the rage in Europe and especially Britain. And so when the 
British people were in India, of course, they wanted foods that made them feel at home. They wanted comforts that they were used to. And so they wanted to grow peas, which is all well and good, except that it supplanted other crops that had been grown in India for millennia that withstood harsh conditions if there had, you know, suddenly uh, a bad season for, for crops or if there were storms, they could be stored. Peas don't store well. And so the gondagol was that it, it really didn't belong there. But Despite that, there's a lot of great food in India that incorporate the pea. And one of the recipes is in the in the book. It's a it's a bread that's stuffed with a spiced pea mash that's absolutely delicious. So it's not that Indians didn't like it; they acquired a taste for it. But it did cause a lot of trouble when it came to seasons of scarcity. Indeed, I and mean, then there were many famines. We should say that were if not directly caused by the British, they were exacerbated by the British who refused to understand Indian suffering during that time and made matters a whole lot worse. You talk about your grandmother Rani's generation as being the recipient of many foods popularised by the British Raj, which you describe as a delicious mixing of two cultures, one palatable to the British and one exotically foreign for Indians. But you also write, and I love this, that British people ate India, but first they overran its cuisine and branded it or blanded it. <laughs> so I'm curious in what way this mixture of cultures was delicious. It seems to have been bland. Ah, uh, well, you know, it's my comfort food. I, I, that's one of the surprises I had when I was in India was all the foods of my grandmother's kitchen, which my mother then recreated in Kansas when I was growing up, were actually the foods of conquest. They were the foods that developed under the British Raj. They were chops. They were, you know, delicious foods. They are delicious. And they're my comfort foods. Not all of them are foods that are uh, that generated under that that period of time, but a lot of them are. And I, I was just really surprised by that. I, I didn't know. And um, if you think about it, when the chef of the Calcutta Club started making these wonderful omelets with just a little green chili in them, and my mother started recreating those omelets for me when I was in Kansas <laughs> in the 60s, it's an interesting trail back, right? But it comes up right underneath a political shift in India that was traumatic sometimes and and sometimes dark but but it also did produce a cuisine that that is it's a hybrid those chops are good you know if you <laughs> you go and get those at a restaurant in india or if you make them at home you'll like them they would be made more interesting by the chutneys cilantro chutney or not always sweet ones but they had a little packed a little punch and so it was a delicious blend of two cultures Early on in the book, you talk about how cuisine everywhere is a result of change, foreign ingredients and the importation of ideas, and all of us put down roots to make space for ourselves. And at the very end of your book, you touch on the idea of food appropriation, and you write that if there's respect for a food's history and origins, maybe the issue of appropriation is less of a concern, especially when it comes to taste and health. Is food appropriation a big deal? Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I, I think so. You know, uh, we have, as a humanity in this culture especially, I think we're beginning to recognize how much we've done that. Many of the comfort foods in from the American South were foods that were developed under scarcity and suffering by the black Americans that were brought here. 
unwillingly. And, you know, they made something delicious out of a time of hardship. And the fact that if you look at early American cookbooks, the women who wrote those cookbooks take credit for those recipes. They were not their recipes. They came from a totally different culture. And I think it's fair enough. Everybody wants to enjoy anything delicious and we want them to, you know, we love to share our foods. Everybody does, or at least I feel like we all do. Um, But if you do that without acknowledging the history of it, without even to yourself understanding that history, I think not only do you lose out, you know, just being enriched by that story, but it, you lose an opportunity to celebrate who we really are as a nation because we are several food trails. The European food trail is one of them, and that should also be celebrated. But I don't think that one food culture should take credit for everybody's delicious foods. I think that's what causes a lot of disgruntlement, I guess is a good word. People like to be acknowledged. I think that cultures deserve to be acknowledged. And I don't think it's just a matter of what's right and wrong. It just makes us all so much more informed about who we are and perhaps creates more connections between our subcultures in this country or abroad. But if we're just talking about the U.S. right now, you know, that's important to me. I want to see cultures, the boundaries of cultures become more fluid. I want to see people get along and also celebrate each other. That kind of result from understanding food history would be ideal to me. I think that'd be fantastic. Sitting down together to share food is always a magical moment. Let me end by asking you the Desert Island question. What dish would be the one that you would magically have the ingredients for if you were stranded on a desert island? What could you not live without? Oh, wow. Huh. Gosh, Diana, that's like asking you which child you would take with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's just really unfair. You see, I Um, think it's a cheese dish. Ah, well, you know, that would probably be very, very close to my heart. Because if you took, (laughs) if you took Chana with you, you could make it into various different things. But of course, I would need other ingredients. But it is a good base, so I, I probably wouldn't uh, would not complain about taking that simple cheese with me. <laughs> <laughs> Nina Mukherjee Fersenau's new book, Green Chili and Other Imposters, is out this week and available at Skylark Bookshop. You can also connect with Nina via her website, ninafirstnow.com, and you can sign up for her newsletter, which I can attest always makes me hungry. <laughs> Nina, thank you so much for writing so deliciously and for being our guest this evening. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. On March the 12th last year, the unimaginable happened to actors across the country. The show did not go on. For everyone working on Broadway, those on stage and the myriad of artists and technicians working behind the scenes, the doors closed and only the ghost light was left illuminating stages. And for those actors in touring productions, one minute they were halfway across the country in the middle of a months or years long run and the next minute. 
they were on a red eye heading home. And that was the case for my next guest this evening. Actor John Hempel was about to go on stage in Salt Lake City, Utah as Larry Murphy, the dad in the touring production of the Broadway hit Dear Evan Hansen. But instead, he packed his bags and headed back to Missouri to hunker down with his wife, Stevens College's Dean of Performing Arts, Jennifer Hempel, to wait out the six-week lockdown. But as we know, for theatres around the world, six weeks has turned into 18 months. And during that time, many, many people have left the theatre profession. But now Broadway is open and this Sunday, John Hemphill heads back to the cast of Dear Evan Hansen to complete the remainder of his contract. But before he leaves town, he is here with us. Good evening, John. Good evening. Thanks for having me, Diana. So you play the emotionally distant dad, Larry Murphy, in Dear Heaven Hansen, but this isn't your first dad role, as you've twice played dads in the musical (laughs) Mamma Mia. How does it feel the first time a casting agent says, ooh, we have a dad role for you? It's a bit of a shock, to be quite <laughs> honest. It, it is. As actors, we try to know thyself and know where we are in our lives and know what our essence is and how we market ourselves. But to first learn that, oh, now I'm I'm up there now and I'm getting dad <laughs> roles, it is a shock. It is a shock. But it's also great because it's it's fun playing a dad on stage and on screen for sure. So take us back to March the 12th of last year. What happened that day? You know, it was, you know, I say a shock, but of course we knew the pandemic was looming. Um, but it was, I, I do say it was a shock. One minute you are with your tour family doing this show that you love. And I'll say I was, I'd been out on tour for about a year and a half. So that had been my life at that point. And we got the call that comes through our producers and uh, stage management and company management team. And it was surreal. And we, in fact, at that time, weren't necessarily clear what the next stop was going to be. We honestly thought it was going to be the the very next week we were going to be heading to Omaha. And as we know, that just didn't happen. <laughs> and so I, like your opening, I, I got on a red eye. Um, my wife was like, you know, we don't know what the airports are going to be doing and just get on a plane. And so I uh, talked to my management team and I got right on a plane, but it, but it, it was like being kind of ripped from a family in a, in a way. And um, all of your your belongings in your trunk are left behind and and you just have to really just kind of figure it out as you go along because it was all new territory for everyone. But it was a shock. It really was. It quickly became apparent that six weeks was not going to solve the COVID situation. And April and May last year was when we all watched in horror as the huge medical crisis unfolded in one of the richest cities in the richest country in the world. I mean, so you weren't there on Broadway like so many of your acting colleagues. What were you hearing from Broadway at that time? Well, it was um, it was a really dark time. It was a really dark time, certainly in the medical field and certainly for those tragic many who were dealing with COVID in the hospitals. And emotionally, I think for actors whose industry just completely disappeared, it was an emotional struggle. 
you know, our actor <laughs> band is uh, is a very emotional group, and we are a sensitive lot. And I think that having the industry just disappear was was very difficult for many, and many had to leave New York, and just not knowing what to do next not knowing it, it was very hard for a lot of people and i i thankfully didn't have to to face that uh, for long which was really fortunate has anybody within your own touring production decided not to come back and, and moved on to a different part of their life most everyone is returning but some decided not to and i i 1000% support them in their next endeavor. Um, Noah Kaiserman, who was our Connor Murphy, my son in the show, is going to open new areas for for himself in New York. And, and he most certainly will because he's incredibly talented and, and has already had a solo show at Studio 54, or they call it 54 Below. It's the marvelous little cabaret space they have below Studio 54. So it wasn't for everyone to return. Mm. But like I say, the, the majority of the company is, is intact, which is really wonderful for all of us to be able to be back together again. So, At any one time, there are multiple touring productions out on the road. And I'm curious to what extent have the other touring shows, or maybe to what extent has, has your production team looked after you during this time? Because they could just have cut you all loose and said end of contract, right? Oh, easily, very easily. And I, and I cannot say enough about Stacey Mindich, who was our producer, and all of those at 101 Management. They're, they're just, they have, they have, they have uh, well, let me tell you what they've done. We accrue weeks for our medical insurance through equity, and the producers pay into that. And they don't have to, they did not have to, but they paid a year and a half towards our medical insurance. And so I, I can't even express to you how wonderful that is for this group of out-of-work actors who had access to medical insurance. Mm. And in some cases, we had a few people that had some real medical emergencies and they were able to get care. And for that, I will always be grateful. So we, we have been, we certainly were taken care of when we're out on this tour. And the same has happened while we were not on the tour. And, and that's just, it's fairly remarkable from a producer. It's really, really great. So we're, we're all very fortunate. So you're heading back out at a time when different cities are in different stages of pandemic ebbs and surges. And of course, we don't know what's coming over the next six months. What kind of protocols is the production team putting in place to keep the actors and the crew safe? So everyone has to be vaccinated. You have to have proof of vaccination. And that's the performers as well as the crew and all in the building. So that's the first step. And testing is the next step. We, of course are moving all over the country. So they have a plan in place as far as the rate of infections. Uh, we will be testing more than we would in, say, Maine or something like that. So they really have been very conscious about prevention. You know, you combine that with mask mandates in the theater Pretty much we, we are wearing our masks always, except for when we are on stage. So 
I feel that, um, and and this is this is really from from the beginning when this all started to unfold when we were out there. They they really do um, take care of us, and the precautions are relevant and science based, and so I, I don't feel I don't feel nervous about going. I do feel focused on my health and to make sure I do the right things and and I'm sure that will be led in that direction as as we usually are. So it's a good team. We're very lucky, and I, you know I'll say that probably four or five times here, if, if not more. But the Dear Evan Hansen team is is really an incredible group. I know this is a crystal ball question, but six months down the road, assuming that there were no new surges to halt production and the producers offer you an extension, but Stevens College has held your position. How much of a tussle will that be for you? Well, you know, I, I don't foresee that happening just the way I see the contracts going. Uh, I think this is a pretty firm six months and I'll be back. So Sometimes we hope we don't have to make those decisions, <laughs> but I'm really enjoying the work that I'm able to do with the students at Stevens. I get so much satisfaction seeing the light bulbs go off for them as they approach the work. And and it's been really a fortunate thing for me to be able to offer my experience, both my experience in Los Angeles, working in film and television, as well as then transitioning into the Broadway world in New York. You know, there's a lot that happens off the stage that is just as valuable as if, or, or if not more valuable than what happens on the stage. Managing your mental health, managing auditions, and then thinking about the business behind what we do. And so to be able to help the students understand those things going forward and and knowing that they can take that with them out into the world once they leave Stevens has been really rewarding. And it's been, um, I don't know if, if it's been a surprise, but it's just been something that it's, it's been valuable to me. So, you know, when, when that, if we had a crystal ball, um, I just think that, um, yeah, I would, I would have to say, I, I don't know, <laughs> but I do know that, um, We've really, really enjoyed, and I, I have really enjoyed working with the students at Stevens. So I, I, I hope to continue that, and that's that is the plan right now, and and I really do see that uh, being the case. So definitely, it's such a fabulous advantage and so beneficial to be able to work with someone who's really been on those boards and been behind the scenes and understands how the whole thing works. Must be just amazing to be a Stevens College student and have people like you and Jennifer as professors. So final question, how close will you be to Columbia in the next six months of the tour? How far do we have to go to see you? Well, I think, unfortunately, the closest is going to be Omaha. So I think that's like four. Is that about four hours away? Yeah, just down um, the road. <laughs> yeah, just down the road. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, this swing it, it takes me a little far away from home base. But I will just say, if it does come around again and I am not involved, please go because it you'll you'll really enjoy it. It's it's a it's just a special show and and uh, 
I probably won't be in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we get to see you here in Columbia instead. Absolutely. Actor John Hemper will be heading back out to play Larry Murphy in the touring production of Dear Evan Hansen, after which we all hope he will come back to Columbia to be the assistant professor of acting at Stevens College. John, break many legs over the next six months and let's catch up again when you get back. Thank you for making time to chat today. Thank you, Diana. Puccini's opera La Boheme premiered in 1896, a tale of an impoverished seamstress and her bohemian pals in 1830s Paris, a tale of love and loss and tuberculosis. Flash forward exactly 100 years and on almost exactly the same date, the rock musical Rent, which took La Boheme as its inspiration, opened off-Broadway, a tale of poor musicians and creatives, heartless landlords, drag queens, love and loss and the HIV-AIDS pandemic. And whilst Puccini got to see the success of his opera, tragically, the composer of Rent, Jonathan Larson, did not. He died suddenly the night before its off-Broadway premiere, never seeing his creation go on to be one of the longest-running shows on Broadway, winning the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and the Tony Award for Best Musical and grossing over $270 million. And next week, his rock musical opens in Columbia, courtesy of the University of Missouri's theatre department and my guest, assistant teaching professor, director of undergraduate studies and the director of the upcoming production, Joy Powell. Welcome back to the show, Joy. Oh, thank you. It's always good to uh, be with you, Diana. Thanks for the time. The byline for Rent is that it's about finding your voice, living for today and measuring our life in love, which seems like things we mostly forget to do until a global pandemic comes along and we realise how fragile life is and how important relationships are. So I can't help but think there is a pandemic link in your choosing this musical for this semester, or is that just a coincidence? Well, as per usual, you are correct. (laughs) (laughs) It is absolutely on purpose. I did not know the Puccini, La Boheme, and Rent um, in New York were 100 years apart. That is fascinating. Thank you for that tidbit. Almost to the day. Yeah. So we're at 25 years since the New York opening this year. And so we are very excited to present this musical. And it is very timely. While HIV, AIDS, and coronavirus are not the same, there's definitely parallels. And this story definitely resonates in a different way than it would have two years ago. And so we are very excited to be back in person. While, you know, the pandemic is not over, uh, we're not in the same place we were even six months ago. And so we are very excited to be back on the Reinsberger stage, in person, with our audiences, in a safe way so that um, we can do what we were made to do, which is make theater. What's interesting is most of the people in the show were not alive when Rent premiered. And so it's been very powerful to share with them what that time was like, late 80s, early 90s. And for them to discover, oh, wow, I'm not, I'm not, that much different than the folks that that dealt with these things, right? I'm not that much different than the community that is built in rent. Um, And that's really what we're all about is community. And it has been just incredible to watch the community of this cast and crew and production team come together to tell this really important story. 
So tell me about your production and what innovations you have in it. Well, we have just the best team you could possibly have. You know, Mimi Hedges is our scenic designer, and she and I both did research about what did lofts look like at that time. There's more than just um, the parallel with disease in this musical with our current times. Um, a lot of people are uh, don't have secure housing then and now. The idea of paying rent is, of course, very timely as you know, there's all kinds of legislation about putting a moratorium on evictions and that not happening. And, you know, there's there's so many things that really connect us to 25 years ago. But Mimi and I sat down and we looked at those lofts and those artist spaces and those warehouse sort of industrial feel. And um, her design is just amazing. We have the band on stage, which I love. Um, actually, in the original Broadway production, Jonathan Larson had a rock band on stage and a full orchestra in the pit. And I've heard it said that that really encapsulates him as an artist, having those both, both of those things working together. We have the band and the energy and just having those guitar riffs underneath. We have Vincent Williams, who's one of our alums. He's our lighting designer. And we have a, a real sort of this rock feel to the lighting design. So we, we have, you know, the lights, you can see them. They're more exposed. We don't have the, the borders hanging to, to mask them. So there's this real sense of, of exposure and openness and industrial feel to the whole thing. We're really paying homage to the original show as far as the costumes. And, you know, we have a great design team. Uh, Mark Vital is our resident costume designer. And, and we have Brett Christofferson, who's our music director and the conductor of the pit. And, you know, we all have just been working so hard to, to tell this story. But as we're telling it, making sure that the process reflects this idea of loving each other well and building community. I mean, how odd would it be for us to tell this story and not take its lessons uh, to heart as we're creating this production? And so for me, having seen the original cast on Broadway <clears throat> 25 years ago, I can't believe I'm that old. When you were three, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's why I love you. Um, having seen that show and knowing that I was watching history occur in front of my eyes and then rush forward here 25 years later and I'm directing it, it's personally, it's a real dream come true. And I feel like I can give my students that experience and that really is the best thing of all. I'm curious about your production philosophy, whether, obviously you've seen Rent probably multiple times, but mm -hmm. how much you squirrel away elements that you like and combine them or whether you're really a purist and you want to create a show that is totally original and unencumbered by past ideas. Well, I would say it's a mixture. You know, I think there's certain elements that are in the actual script that we want to keep, like there's an orange extension cord that comes over the wall that is their only source of electricity in the loft, right? We've got the, the answering machine because there's the, <laughs> I was teasing the cast. I was like, do you know what an answering machine is? And they're like, Dr. Powell, <laughs> yes. But they never seen one. You know, we pulled one out of, out of our prop storage. And, and so, so those elements that are essential to the storytelling, we definitely keep. So we, we definitely pay, like I said, pay homage to the original, but we are not tied to that. And um, there's a lot of scenes where 
I've ignored the stage directions in the script and done what what works for our production. So I I would say it's a mixture. We also have 21 people in the cast. And so that also adjusts how I stage it, but also who gets access to this story by who's in it and the representation that they bring. Um, And then when the audience sees that and they see maybe someone that looks like them on the stage, then that really is one of the most powerful things I think about this story is that every single person has a place to belong. With a production like Rent, which is relatively contemporary, it's only 25 years old, which isn't terribly old in the scheme of things. Right. Do you have the liberty to set it in a different time or are you really locked into you have to set it in that same time period as it was written for? It's interesting that you asked that question. The production team, we, we talked a lot about that. Do we update it? Do we put it on Mars? Do we put it now? Do we put it, you know, and we just really felt like it was a period piece. And period pieces need to remain where they are so that we can reflect on them. We have enough aesthetic distance, right, that we can we can see them and for the value of what they are, but we can also learn from them. And because of, you know, the beepers and the cell phones and so many references to that time, we felt like the best way to honor that story was to keep it in 1989 to 1990. But what's interesting is it feels like a very um, present and urgent story to tell, even though it's set during that time. And what we have had a lot of conversations about is how much more our language and our sensibility and our knowledge and wisdom about gender and sexuality and even disease, how we have evolved since then. Now, we're, we're not where we need to be by any means, but... There's definitely growth um, as we think about folks that are gender fluid or non-binary and what pronouns do folks use and those kinds of things. We've really infused our process with those important details in ways that the script doesn't. And so how we tell the story, we want it to be ethical, we want it to be equitable, um, we want it to be loving. But we've had a lot of tough conversations because some of the words and some of the lyrics are antiquated, right? We don't we don't use those words anymore. And so we've had to really take care of one another and be gentle as we have worked through that and rehearsed it um, because it's not an easy story to tell. Yes, there's funny parts, but there is loss and there is the topics are are challenging to think about. But I think Rent does that, presents these these topics in a way that that really makes us think and and actually ultimately gives us hope. And that's that's what I hope this show will do. Whilst I have you here, I know you just came back from a week or so in New York where you crammed oh, yes. in, I think, what, five shows? Five shows, yeah. <laughs> hey, when you're there, and especially since I hadn't been there since 2019, which is a long time for me. Yeah, it was a whirlwind let's say. So how were you, Joy Powell, the director, changed by the visit? That's such a wonderful question. Well, first of all, I wasn't sure what New York I would encounter. Like, what would it be like? Would it be different? Would it, you know, so many photos and video of Times Square empty throughout this time of challenge. And I was thrilled to get there and have it feel like New York. And being at a Broadway show when they haven't had any Broadway shows for all these months 
was absolutely incredible. I was actually in the audience for the Tina Turner musical for their reopening night. And all I can say is the atmosphere was electric. It was, there was just so much gratitude in the air. You know, people were in the audience and on stage were just so glad to be there that I just came back with my, my batteries charged. You know, um, it was like a vitamin for the soul. And I had a hope in me. I felt so hopeful after that trip in a way that I had kind of struggled, honestly, to have. Um, and that's hard to say, cause I, you know, I have my dream job, my dream place. I love what I do. I love my student. I love my life, but this pandemic has taken a toll on so on every aspect of who we are. And so being in New York and, and seeing Jeff Daniels in To Kill a Mockingbird and seeing Six, the musical, which, oh my gosh, Diana, you have to see it when you can. It's amazing. And that's the 21st century girl power retake yes, on Henry VIII's wives. It is. <laughs> yes. Look at you. Look at you. Ready. You think we planned that? We didn't, folks. We didn't. She just had it at the ready. So I felt like I could kind of bring that back. And that definitely has informed just being in New York. So yes, it was a wonderful trip. I was there for a conference for theater educators, and that was wonderful as well. So I am experiencing, as per usual, an embarrassment of riches in my life. So thank you for asking. Well, the musical Wren opens at the Rheinsberger Theatre next Thursday, November the 4th, and runs for two weekends, closing on Sunday, November the 14th. Evening performances are at 7.30, plus there are 2pm matinees on Sundays and a special 11am spotlight performance on Wednesday, November the 10th. You can find out more at theatre.missouri.edu and Joy Powell. Always a delight chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, author Nina Mukherjee Firstenau, actor John Hempel and director Joy Powell. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!